After the sermon, we will sing together from Psalm 67, the stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Brothers and sisters of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, it is our tradition to give thanks at this time of the year, for tomorrow is Thanksgiving Day. It's also our tradition to have our children baptized, which we did just a moment ago. These are good trans traditions. But traditions, for their own sake, have little or no meaning. That is also what a newlywed couple discovered about their own family tradition when they wanted to cook their first Thanksgiving dinner. As the wife prepared a baked ham, she placed it on a cutting board and chopped off both ends of the ham with a knife and tossed the two small ends into the garbage can. And the mystified husband asked, why did you do that? Why did you just cut off the ends of the ham and throw them away? Well, said his wife, that's the way my mother always prepared it. Maybe it helps to bring out the flavor. But the husband was not too sure about this, and so he called his mother-in-law, and he said to her, can you tell me why you cut the two ends off a ham before you cook it? Well, said she, I'm not really sure why. That's just the way my mother did her ham, and it was always delicious. As soon as he hung up, he called his wife's grandmother. He says, Grandma, we have an important question for you. Can you tell us why you cut off the ends of a ham before you cook it? Oh, yes, my dear, answered Grandma. I cut the ends off the ham so that it would fit in my pan. Traditions are important. But we have to know why we keep the traditions. Why do we have them? Psalm 111 tells us what that is all about. It begins with the well-known word, Hallelujah. Hallelujah is made up of two Hebrew words, halal, which means to shine or to give shine or to bring praise, and Yah, which is a short form for Yahweh, which refers to the Lord. And that is why the NIV, the translation most of you have in front of you, translate this as praise the Lord. People exclaim hallelujah all the time. Also unbelievers. They will sing hallelujah and shout hallelujah, even though they have no intention of praising the Lord. They utter that beautiful phrase out of ignorance. They don't know what it means. And they certainly don't do it in the way that they are supposed to, namely, with a sincere heart. But that is how the Lord God wants us to praise him. Look at how this psalm starts off. It says, I will extol the Lord with all my heart. It's a matter of the heart. It is not a mindless recitation, recitation of some words which you have memorized and which you recite because that is what you have always been doing. No, what you say is what you mean within your heart, with your whole being. The psalmist says, I will extol the Lord. 
This is a confession, a confession of God's greatness. What the psalmist is actually saying is that he stands in awe of God's wonderful attributes and works. It is an acknowledgement that God is the God and the source of all good. And that is why most other Bible trans translations refer to giving thanks. The English Standard Version says, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. And that's what we do at this time of the year. We give thanks. That's also what I will preach to you about. The theme for this morning's service is give thanks for God's awesome dealings with his people. Give thanks to him by, in the first place, remembering his great works. In the second place, pondering his word. And in the third place, obeying his will. Psalm 111 is an acrostic. That is, it is arranged according to the alphabet. One of the first things that children learn are their ABCs. They have to memorize their alphabet, don't you, children? Well, that's also what the children had to do during the time that the Bible was written. The first letters of the Hebrew alphabet are Aleph, Beth, and Gimel, etc. Those are also the letters with which each sentence of this psalm begins. In the 10 verses of this psalm, there are 22 sentences beginning with each successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, why do you think the author composed this psalm in such a manner? Well, so that they can remember. It is much easier to remember the words of this psalm in this way. And it is also much easier to recite it. I'm sure that you younger members of this congregation who have to learn their psalms for school every week would not mind at all if the psalms were, that you have to learn were written in that way in English as well. That it began with each letter of the alphabet. That would help you memorize, wouldn't it? But the author of this psalm wants to make it easy to remember the lines of this particular psalm. He wants to make it as easy as possible to recite it so that you can remember the beautiful things that are stated in this psalm. He wants you to be able to remember these things, especially during times of distress and difficulty. You see, this psalm was written, most likely, after the Israelites returned from exile. That is, after they returned from their own country, Israel, for they had been banished from there, exiled, kicked out. And that had happened decades before that. And now finally, the Persians allowed them to go back to their own land. But it wasn't an easy time. For in the meantime, Israel had been occupied by other people, and they were hostile to them. And the Persian officials were usually not very cooperative either. And furthermore, economically, it was tough. Many of the returning Jews lived in poor and difficult circumstances, in makeshift houses. 
And God's people were not always faithful either. They didn't follow God's commandments. They didn't love God and their neighbor as they were commanded, as you and I are commanded, as we heard this morning. As the prophets Ezra and Haggai tell us, they were individualistic in their, pro in their approach, and they weren't very generous to each with each other, each to his own. And so they needed to be reminded of who God is and who they are in relationship to him. They have to give thanks to him. They have to acknowledge him. They have to remember how the Lord God has dealt with his people throughout the ages. They have to remember who he is. And note well that the psalmist says that this must be done in verse 1 in the council of the upright and the assembly. That sounds somewhat formal, doesn't it? Who is he talking about? Who is the council of the upright? Who is the assembly? Well, he is talking about God's people who gather together. He is talking to those people who go to church. Some people think that they can praise God anywhere. They can praise him in nature. They can praise him at work and at home and during football games and hockey games. They can praise him everywhere. And of course, that's true, and you should. But if you only do that when the mood hits you, when you are feeling happy, and if it is just something that you do on your own, then you are not really praising him in all his words and works. You have to learn to do it in all circumstances. And you have to do that especially in the midst of God's people in church. As a matter of fact, that's where it begins. It is in the midst of God's people that you learn to praise his great name. For it is in church that you are taught and reminded time and again about the great and wonderful works of God. In the midst of this world full of sin and misery. It is in church that you are taught what it means, as it says in verse 9, that he has ordained his covenant forever. That refers to the relationship that he has established with his own people. And that refers to the expression of praise that such a relationship elicits. This morning, little Noah Slump was brought into this church to be baptized. The parents did not leave Noah at home to have the minister come over there who also happens to be the grandfather. No, they brought him to church. And that is because Noah belongs to God's covenant people. There you have that word covenant again. Do you know what a covenant is? Most of you know. There are many aspects to it, however. And one of the main features of the covenant is that it is a contract. A contract between two parties. And that is what God has done with his people. He made a contract with them. And he didn't just make it with an individual there or there. No, he doesn't make little agreements here and there. He makes his covenant with his people. And who are his people? His people are those who believe in him. 
as children. They're sinful people. They're not holy people of themselves. They're holy because only God can make you holy. His people are those who worship him, not just on their own, but in the assembly, in church. That's where it begins. And what kind of covenant, what kind of contract did he make with his people? Well, in that contract, he promises the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And he promises to give you his Holy Spirit. He also promises to provide for them with everything they need for body and soul. And he promises to give that to you into eternity. Do you know what's most amazing about this? It is that God gives that to you free of charge. You don't have to do anything in order to receive those wonderful gifts except to be thankful. Many of us make contracts all the time with our landlord, with our boss, with our employees. We also make wills. They're also contracts. But have you ever seen a contract like the one that the Lord God made? Have you ever seen anyone make a will in which they left everything for their worst enemy? But that's what the Lord God has done for Noah's lump and for you and for me. For even though we were all God's enemies, as Paul says in Romans 5 verse 10, he has reconciled us to him through his son. Such reconciliation is signified in baptism. Reconciliation refers to the fact that everything is well between God and us. And baptism makes us one with God and gives us the blessing that we don't deserve. Of course, Noah doesn't understand any of this, and therefore he doesn't care either right now about what God has promised to him this morning. He doesn't care because he doesn't understand yet. He's also sinful, for aside from inheriting his good looks from his parents and his grandparents, Noah also inherited sin. As David says in Psalm 51, he was born and conceived in sin. That means that as he grows up, he can also reject God's covenant promises. Sometimes children do that. They have difficulty with sin and with the effects of sin. And as they grow up, they see all the sins and all the flaws of all the other people in church, and they say they're a bunch of hypocrites, and they walk away. But they don't see their own sin. They can tell you all about everybody else's sin, except their own. They can tell you about all how others have hurt them in the past and said some nasty things to them, and by they themselves are as innocent as doves. And so what do they do? They try to find people just like them. Nice people. People who don't say or do wrong things. 
Well, it will be an endless pursuit because you won't find them anywhere. Because we are all sinful people. In the meantime, they get lost. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, you will never have a sense of belonging if you don't understand your own sins. For we are all part of God's sinful people. The church is full of sinners. The Apostle Paul himself says that he is the foremost of all sinners. And that is something that each and every one of us should also be able to say about him or herself. I am a sinner. For if you don't realize the enormity of your own sin, then you won't know from what you have been delivered either. Then you won't know about the great miracle of salvation. And then you won't be able to tolerate the sins of others either. In this psalm, the people are reminded of what happened at the time of the exodus out of Egypt. Many of the phrases in this psalm are also found in the book of Exodus. I could show that to you from the book of Exodus, but we don't have time for that. But take my word for it, a lot of these phrases come from the book of Exodus in connection with the great miracles that God performed for his people when he brought them out of the land of slavery, out of Egypt. And the Israelites, God's people, have to remember those wonders, those miracles. As it says in verse 4 of the psalm. The most miraculous event that they have to remember is that the Lord led his people Israel on dry land through the sea. The Lord God parted the waters. He saved them from their enemies. And then while they were in the desert, he provided them with everything they needed. Their shoes did not wear out. They received manna, bread from heaven, rocks opened up to gush forth water. God performed many, many miracles. He showed his great love to his people. And that's what they have to remember. They may not forget about God's love. They may not forget about how God looks after them. And they have to give thanks. The only way that you can give thanks is by remembering what he has done. And so you need to be reminded of God's goodness. How? Well, the psalmist gives us an idea when he says in verse 2 that God's works are pondered by all who delight in them. That's the second point. The word ponder in the Hebrew language literally means to visit often. Faith is created and strengthening by visiting God's word often. It will be at least four or five years before Noah will be able to read. And therefore, the parents have the duty to have him visit God's word on a regular basis by reading to him from a Bible storybook, by teaching him to pray, and by telling him about the great works of God and telling him about how God has created him and about who he is 
how he provides for him every day, how the Almighty God so wonderfully takes care of his people. But he has to especially learn about his sins and how he has been delivered from his sins. People who do not know God do not know their own sins either. They're always excusing their own behavior. They're always in damage control. And they always want to do what suits them best. And so they live as if there is no tomorrow, as if there is no God. But you do not just teach these things at home. You also do that together with your fellow covenant people. You learn about God's, about God together with the people of the church. And since Noah will not be able to drive himself to church for at least another 16 years, you as parents have the duty to bring him to church. Don't think that that's a habit he's going to acquire of himself. He has to learn that. And that's why we also bring children here into this church service. It is wonderful to see all you children here in the church. Oh, I know there's a lot of things that you don't quite understand. But please understand one thing. God loves you. And he has given you parents to show you that he loves you. But you also have to respond to that. In other words, you also have to love God yourself. To love God means that you also have to love God's people. And that includes your brothers and sisters. The ones that live at home, your friends. Love them. Be kind. Be compassionate. You can't separate God from his people. They belong together. We do not baptize our children just because it is our tradition. Many mainline churches do that. They have their children baptized, and then for the rest, they hardly, if ever, take them to church. The parents themselves don't attend either, as if the baptism makes the child a Christian. I read not so long ago that in England, an atheistic organization has made up a certificate of de-baptism. This is meant for people who were baptized as babies and who want to have that undone because they don't consider themselves to be Christians. Baptism has no meaning for them, especially not their own baptism. It has no meaning for them because they have not been brought in accordance with the promises that go along with the baptism. Children, your parents made promises at the time that you were baptized that they would teach you about all the teachings as you find them in the Bible. Just like the slopes did just a moment ago. Your parents promised as father and mother to instruct you and to have you instructed in the church, to instruct you about the almighty power of God. Do you know about the almighty power of God? He showed his power when he led his people Israel through the Red Sea. He delivered them. That was a great miracle. And he shows his power every day in nature. 
You do not have anything without God, and you have to acknowledge him. But do you know what the greatest miracle is of all? The fact that he has delivered you from sin through Jesus Christ. It was a great miracle that the Son of God, with all his majesty and glory, cast all those attributes and qualities aside and came down to earth as a man. And as a man, he allowed himself to be humiliated and ridiculed and horribly abused. He even allowed himself to be nailed on the cross. But then he especially showed his power, his almighty power. For Christ rose from the dead. That is the most significant thing that has ever happened. And then he ascended into heaven. He rose from the dead so that he could give life, eternal life, to all those who believe in him. That, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, is the only way that sin and all the effects of sin can be dealt with. Your sin, my sin, Noah's sin. God is the God of life. He creates life and he sustains life and he gives eternal life. He sustains the life of every creature here on earth. And we have to learn to give thanks to him. For if you don't, then you stand condemned along with the rest of this world. Because then you are blind to the almighty God who, preside, who provides us with everything. Don't be like Bart, the foul-mouthed little boy of the cartoon The Simpsons. When he was asked to pray for a meal, he said, God, since we paid for the food ourselves, thanks for nothing. That is the attitude of those who don't know God. They trample on his word, and God will trample on them. He wants us to obey his will, the third point. Verse 10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What does it mean? What does it mean to you to fear him? Does that mean that you have to be scared of him? Don't be scared of him. He is a wonderful and loving God. But what it does mean is that you respect him. It means that you treasure the relationship that you have with him. Fear is not that we are afraid of him like someone who is afraid of heights or of the dark. It is a fear like we fear a fire. You don't just put your hand in the flames because you know that it will severely hurt you. You have respect for the fire. In the same way, you also have to respect to revere the Lord. If you have proper respect for a fire, then you know how to be warmed by a fire without getting burned. You also know how to allow a fire to illumine everything around you without it burning you to a crisp. You know what it can do, and you respect it. And that kind of respect will give you wisdom. You don't get wisdom by just reading a book. You learn wisdom by learning about the covenant of the Lord. You learn wisdom by understanding the limits that he has set so that you won't get burned to a crisp. That's why he gave his law. 
It says in verse 10 that all who follow his precepts have good understanding. His precepts are his laws, his commandments. That's a summary of his will. He gave them to you and to me so that we won't get hurt. He gave them to you and to me because of the covenant relationship that he has established with us and our children. Ultimately, the laws that he gives to us are given to us as rules for thankfulness. For let's remember that our relationship with the Lord our God does not depend on the law. It is not as if the Lord God says that as long as we keep his laws, then we can have a relationship with him. No, he establishes a covenant relationship with us and with our children. And therefore, he gives us the law. The relationship always comes first. And the laws are there to protect us from harm. The wonderful news is that those precepts, those laws, have already been kept by the Lord Jesus Christ in every respect. And therefore, God does not expect us to be perfect in the way that we keep his laws because he knows we can't. We sin against him all the time. We fail all the time, don't we? But as long as we want to keep those rules, those laws, and do our utmost to keep them, as long as we respect, revere God, the lawgiver, then he will also keep us from harm through the Lord Jesus Christ who has rescued us from sin and the effects of sin. And then we keep the laws out of thankfulness for the covenant relationship that he has established with us through his son, Jesus Christ. If you, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, grasp the significance of that, if you understand the depth of the love of God in this way, then you will also want to praise him from the heart. Not because it's your tradition. Then it isn't just something that you do because your family has always done it that way. But then you give thanks because of the great feelings of gratitude that you have towards the almighty God who has delivered you from your sins who has delivered you from this miserable life and who has given you eternal life. Brothers and sisters, be thankful from the heart for what God has done for us and our children. Praise his name. Hallelujah. Amen.